This is the Successful Farming Weeds Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Boyer. Today's program is sponsored by Anthem and Authority Brand Herbicides from FMC. Visit ag.fmc.com. Looking for a herbicide as versatile and reliable as your favorite pocket knife? Anthem Flex Herbicide offers the versatility you need to keep your crops clean. Protect your wheat this season with unmatched flexibility and extended residual control of broadleaf weeds and tough grasses, including Italian ryegrass. Minimize resistance and help maximize yields with Anthem Flex Herbicide. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. My guest today is Dr. Jason Norsworthy. He is a distinguished professor of weed science and holds the Elms Farming Chair of Weed Science with the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. Dr. Norsworthy, as we get started on our conversation today on weed mitigation, let's find out more about your background and what led you into doing what you are doing today with the University of Arkansas in weed research. I grew up on a small farm in southern Arkansas. It was uh, more of what I consider a truck patch farm. Uh, we grew vegetables, mainly peas and uh, sweet potatoes. And, you know, at a very early age, I began to understand the impact of weeds on crops. Uh, we had a lot of manual labor back then and I always laughed and told someone that or told everyone that I wanted to develop herbicides, wanted to find solutions to the issues that we had at hand from a weed management standpoint and had very strong interest in plants. And with that, uh, I received a degree from Louisiana Tech University in agronomy. And then I came to the University of Arkansas where I received a master's and PhD in, uh, in weed science. And after finishing those degrees, I went to Clemson University and worked out in the, in South Carolina for, I guess, six years and returned back to the University of Arkansas in 2006. And since then, I've been employed with uh, the Division of Ag here in the state of Arkansas. So your professional focus has always been on weeds and weed control. That is correct. It has been in in weed control. It's something I'm very, very passionate about Mm -hmm. and conducted a lot of research. And then, like I said, I travel across the U.S., uh, mainly I would tell you most of my research has been centered around herbicide-resistant weeds, the impact that they're having, how do we combat a resistance, and we give a lot of talks on that, not only here in the U.S., but as well as internationally. Dr. Norsworthy, I know this might come up again during our conversation here today. Has most of your research been done on one or two kinds of crops like corn or soybeans, or have you worked on a variety of crops? It's been in a variety of crops. You know, these crops is important here to the growers in the state of Arkansas. I've worked, uh, most of my work has been in rice, cotton, corn, and soybean, because those are important crops here in the state. You know, Arkansas grows about 50% of the U.S. Uh, rice crop. We grow about 1.3 to 1.5 million acres of rice per year. Barnyard grass is a major weed. It's a major weed globally when it comes to to rice production, actually number one weed globally when it comes to rice production. And with that, we have tremendous issues that we're dealing with as it relates to herbicide resistance. We're losing a lot of chemistry. We basically monitor the spread of resistance, trying to understand what we have resistance to and then provide farmer solutions to that. And they're not always chemical solutions. I mean, we look at non-chemical as well as chemical alternatives. But the other weed that I've spent a lot of time on that has national implications is Palmer amaranth. 
The Weed Science Society of America has deemed Palmer amaranth as the number one threat to production agriculture, number one herbicide resistance weed here in the U.S., and uh, spend a lot of time looking at that weed. Most of the issues that we've had from herbicide resistance standpoints tend to start here in the Mid-South. Uh, Arkansas has been at the forefront of a lot of those issues, and we try to understand how they're developing, how we can mitigate the development of resistance, and again, provide growers alternatives. And we've done some very interesting work looking at non-chemical alternatives, looking at diversifying our production systems. And I've spent some time in Australia back, I guess, 2013, gave a keynote address at the International Weed Science Meeting in Australia. And at that event, I had an opportunity to travel across the country and look at some of their diversified systems that they were using in wheat, specifically ways of targeting weed seeding, capturing and killing weed seed and preventing it from going back in the soil. Because if you have a herbicide-resistant weed, as you harvest that crop, the combine collects that seed spreads it across a field, and then you're essentially going to be fighting that weed for years on years to come. And so they had some pretty fascinating things they were doing in Australia around ryegrass and in wheat production, where they were capturing that seed, killing that seed, or at least removing that seed from the field. And they had various different ways of going about doing that. And I brought several of those tactics uh, back to the U.S. and have been doing research on those for the last, I'd say, close to 10 years now. Dr. Norsworthy, I do want to talk about that more specifically here in a little bit, but you had mentioned non-chemical methods for weed control. Let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, when it comes to looking at improving, it's, again, it really starts with diversifying a system. And one way you diversify one is taking selection pressure off of a herbicide. In other words, using these cultural tactics, mechanical tactics. We've done things looking at plant populations, being able to increase plant populations, reducing row spacing. And really what we have found is when you take a look at weeds, Palmer amaranth, for instance, is a weed that's going to emerge over a six-month, seven-month period. It starts for us, generally early April, Palmer amaranth starts emerging, and it emerges through generally middle to late October. And so the key is how do you keep that weed from emerging? Well, one way you keep it from emerging is just ensuring that there's ground cover covering that soil surface at all times. And so we've done some things looking at cover crops. We're actually doing some pretty exciting work right now where we're looking at using what we call relay intercropping. And what relay intercropping is as it relates to wheat and soybean is we grow a wheat crop and then in the spring, as that wheat crop begins to bolt, we go in and we seed soybean into that wheat crop. And with that, you have almost throughout the entire year, the year for which Palmer amaranth is emerging or even other weeds are emerging, you have dense canopy over the soil surface. And that dense canopy essentially prevents weeds like Palmer amaranth from emerging. And as a result of that, you don't have selection pressure on herbicides because if the weeds aren't emerging, they're really not experiencing selection pressure from herbicides. And so there's a lot of different strategies we can use to ensure that we've got ground cover. As I said earlier, narrowing row spacings, increasing seeding rates, using cover crops, using this relay intercropping system. These are some tactics that we evaluate in our program to understand how they have a fit. And 
really also a key component of this, I think, is making sure that you're working with ag economists to understand the economic implications of it. Because at the end of the day, the only way a grower is going to adopt something is if it pencils out and it's profitable, then it continues to be a profitable system. Otherwise, they're going to go out and they're going to continue just to spray herbicide after herbicide until that herbicide breaks. And when that herbicide breaks, they're going to move to the next herbicide in the system. So we definitely try to work with ag economists. We've conducted some work where we've actually developed a software package. We have a software package that's out there today that's available for Palmer Amaranth, specific for cotton, corn, and soybean, where growers can go in. They can enter their production systems. It's going to tell them, again, the profitability of that production system, given their yield potential. It's going to, they can put together a herbicide program. It's going to tell them the risk of resistance developing in that herbicide program, as well as the fact it allows them to add some of these cultural or mechanical tools, these non-chemical tools into these production systems. And again, look at the economics associated with this, not over just a single year, but over a 10-year period. So they can look at crop rotation and they can look at really the implications of this over a long period of time. That is so interesting. I'm really enjoying listening to you. What are some of the research findings you have found so far as far as the benefits to doing this diversification system that you're talking about? Really what we found is as you diversify the system, you're going to minimize the number of weeds that set seed. And you know, a key component of this, we actually talk about zero tolerance. And so what zero tolerance is, is just ensuring that no seed escapes and produces seed that's going to go back into the soil seed bank. It's a pretty simple concept. And if you can actually prevent seed production from entering the soil seed bank, you're going to lower your risk of resistance over a period of time. When you look at other disciplines, for instance, entomology, a lot of entomologists talk about economic thresholds. And so they talk about the fact, okay, you've got to have X number of insects per sweep or per given area. And with that, you're going to have a yield loss. But prior to that, they may tell you not to actually embark upon controlling that insect because it's not going to have economic implications. But that's completely different when we talk about weeds because, for instance, Palmer amaranth, that weed can produce in excess of a half a million seed per plant. And so when you think about just soybeans, so I think about soybean, we're seeding soybean at 130 to 140,000 seed per acre. And you've got one Palmer amaranth that's going to produce 500,000 seed per acre. So that one Palmer amaranth is actually producing three to four times the amount of seed that we're planting for soybean. And you know, you can make the same comparison for corn. And I think this was probably 2007. When glyphosate resistance was really taking off, I did an experiment over a three-year period to really change the focus on economic thresholds or do away with economic thresholds as it relates to weed science. We took and we introduced 25,000 glyphosate-resistant Palmer amaranth seed into a little circle, a small circle, just a few square feet in the middle of a field to basically simulate one plant that had escaped control. And I said 25,000, which is a very, very small plant that would escape control. The following year, 
we went and we sprayed, this was actually a cotton field, we sprayed this cotton field with glyphosate on three different occasions, which was typical of what growers were doing that time. And that patch actually increased from just a few square feet to where it was about 60 feet wide and probably 100 feet in length, where seed had kind of formed a large, large circle because, again, resistance was beginning to spread. The next year when we came in and we sprayed glyphosate several times, it had begun to inundate the entire field. Majority of the field was infested, and by year three, we had complete crop loss in these fields where I had introduced 25,000 seed in this small circle. Three years after introducing that, there was no crop harvested in that field, which again just drives home the point that you cannot allow a single herbicide-resistant weed. And when that weed begins to escape control, a grower can't look out there today and say, okay, is that weed resistant? Is it not resistant? The only way that you can ensure that you're not having long-term implications to your management strategies is to go out there and remove that weed. And we had growers here in the state that was actually practicing what we called, again, zero tolerance. In other words, hand removal of weeds like palmer amaranth, barnyard grass, et cetera, from their crops. And those growers did not experience the influx of glyphosate-resistant Palmer amaranth, again, in 2008 to 2010, they did not experience the influx of glyphosate-resistant Palmer amaranth like the growers that were not practicing zero tolerance because once that weed was established on their farm, as I stated in the research, they quickly, quickly lost the utility of that technology to control that specific weed. When you mentioned going to Australia and you learn more about the capture and kill strategy, was that done mechanically? It is. I mean, there's there's actually several different ways that they've they've gone about doing it over there. They had we built a device basically to catch all of the chaff that was coming out of the combine, and then we'd have these huge chaff piles and we would burn those. I built a device like this and it was very, very effective. We also looked at narrow windrow burning. And so narrow windrow burning, we just took two sheets of uh, pieces of sheet metal and put on the rear of the combine. We turned off the straw spreaders and with that began to funnel the material into a row and we would burn those. And we did research on this where we found that it was 100% kill. If you could burn what was in the row, you had 100% kill of a wide assortment of weeds. We looked at the temperatures that we were getting in those rows and very, very effective. Problem with that is I'm not necessarily a fan of that. I think long-term from a standpoint of burning residue, that residue leaving the field, there's environmental implications associated with that. And, you know, the smoke associated with burning. So we also began to look at these seed destructors. And so Ray Harrington in Australia invented what they call the Harrington Seed Destructor, which was a tow-behind seed mill that basically funneled the chaff into this mill that mechanically destroyed all of the weed seed. I knew there had to be a better design than that, and eventually there began to be the design of integrating these seed mills into the combine. And I've tested here in the U.S., we've tested an integrated Harrington seed destructor on some combines. We've also, now we're doing a lot of work. There's a unit 
out of Canada, which is a little bit more local than Australia. And they also have some businesses here in the U.S. called Redicop Seed Mills. And we've been very, very pleased thus far with the work that we've done with the Redicop Seed Mill. And that is a seed mill that's integrated into the rear of the combine. And with that, again, the chaff fraction basically funnels through this mill and appears to be very, very effective in reducing or killing essentially any of that weed seeds. Looking for a herbicide as versatile and reliable as your favorite pocket knife? Anthem Flex Herbicide offers the versatility you need to keep your crops clean. Protect your wheat this season with unmatched flexibility and extended residual control of broadleaf weeds and tough grasses, including Italian ryegrass. Minimize resistance and help maximize yields with Anthem Flex Herbicide. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. Dr. Norsworthy, what about other research that you have led or been a part of when it comes to killing weeds or mitigating weeds? Some other strategies that we're actually doing is what they call chaff lining, where it's basically taking that chaff, you're leaving it in a row rather than burning it. You allow insects to feed on it. You allow it to rot over the winter months. And then also, if you want to do a targeted herbicide spray, rather than spreading it again over the width of the field, you've got a very narrow 18, 20 inches of banded material where most of the weed seed would be. And you could actually target that rather than spraying the entire field. So we've got some ongoing research in that area as well. Speaking of that, let's talk about modeling temporal weed emergence. What is that exactly? And what are you doing in that realm? You know, it's really understanding the factors that contribute to the emergence of the weeds. And it goes back to what we started this conversation with when I was talking about, you know, cover crops and the need for narrow row crops and really understanding the influence of canopy formation on weed emergence. And so what we've done there is we look at environmental conditions, uh, specifically, again, soil temperature appears to be a major driver in the emergence of weeds. And a lot of weeds, what they actually have to have is they have to have what we call a diurnal, daily diurnal change in temperature, fluctuation in temperature. And they're able to sense that. And when weeds or seed are not dormant, if they can sense a 15, 20 degree day change in daily temperature, once the temperatures are sufficient, it's a signal to the seed that there's nothing above it that's going to compete with that weed if it is to germinate. Because once it germinates, that's its only chance to really complete its objective, and that is to reproduce. And so we've been looking at that, and what we have found is that when you have a canopy over the top of the soil, about 90% light interception or 90% canopy formation, regardless of what that canopy is, you only get about a five-degree temperature change in the soil surface there in the top inch, two inches. That's where the weed seed are germinating. And that in itself is a signal to the weeds not to germinate. So it comes back to, as I said earlier, anything that we can do from a crop standpoint to ensure that we've got ground cover, whether that be cover crops or whether that be, again, trying to increase canopy formation, rate of canopy formation of a crop, we're going to reduce weed emergence. And as we reduce weed emergence, we're reducing the selection pressure again on those herbicides. If I have 50% less weeds that emerge, 
I'm removing 50% of the selection pressure on that herbicide. If I'm asking that herbicide now to control only 10% of the weeds that are normally in a field rather than 100% of them, I'm reducing again the selection pressure. And I'm taking that and I'm placing that pressure again back on the crop or on a cover crop to prevent emergence. But we've done a lot of work, again, understanding some of the triggers. When do weeds emerge? Because when we talk about temporal weed emergence, when we talk about resistance management, I'd say resistance management in general, part of it really starts with understanding the biology of the weed. When is the weed going to emerge? How long is it going to emerge? I can take certain weeds that may only emerge for one week or two weeks. And if they only emerge for one week or two weeks, that grower only needs to have an effective weed control program for that one week or two week period in which that weed is emerging. If I've got another weed such as Palmer amaranth and it's going to emerge over a six month, seven month period, I'm going to have to have a completely different scheme or a set of tactics that I'm going to utilize to minimize emergence of that weed and prevent seed production. Because at the end of the day, we don't want any of these weeds to survive and produce seed that's going to go back into the soil seed bank. So how do you assess weed populations for their herbicide resistance then? First of all, we're involved in a lot of those screenings, I'd say not only statewide, but nationally. The United Soybean Board funds a project, for instance, Palmer Amaranth, where we go in and every year when we have escapes at harvest, any of those escapes potentially could be a herbicide-resistant weed. And so we have growers, consultants that will collect weed seed from these escapes. They will send them in to me or they'll send them to a county agent and they eventually work their way to me. We go to the greenhouse and then we have susceptible populations. I'll take barnyard grass, palmer amaranth, whatever the weed is that we're greening. We'll have a susceptible population We'll have these various seed samples that were collected across the U.S. or across the state of Arkansas, and we'll plant those simultaneously in the greenhouse. Once they come up and they're seedlings, small in size, maybe an inch, two inches in size, we'll make an application. If it's a post-emergence herbicide, we'll spray a 1x rate of that herbicide. The susceptible there is just to ensure that we did everything correct. Hopefully, the susceptible is going to be dead. And then we look at these samples that were sent in. If there is a failure on a sample, we have serious concern at that point that we may have a herbicide-resistant weed. And so if it fails, we begin to look further at that sample. And what we'll do at that point is we will go back in and we'll plant these in the greenhouse and we will spray them with a wide range of doses. We'll plant a susceptible we may spray it with six or seven, maybe eight different herbicide rates. We'll plant the possibly resistant population. We'll spray it with six, seven, eight different herbicide rates. And then we're able to compare the response across all of these rates and essentially confirm resistance. And not only confirm resistance, but we're able to go back in and say the level of resistance within that population. So we can look at the susceptible. We can look at how it responds. We can look at the resistance, how it responds. And it may have a 10-fold, 20-fold, 30-fold level of resistance. And by understanding the level of resistance, it gives us some idea how that weed has become resistant to the herbicide, which is going to lead to further research, really, again, trying to get at how has that weed evolved resistance, as well as it gives us some idea as to what can we do to possibly overcome resistance. And there are some instances 
in which we can possibly overcome some resistance mechanisms within some weeds. I'm not going to say that's possible with a lot of them, but there are some where we can actually knock out possibly certain enzymes or we can take a certain compound and we can place with the herbicide that's going to make the herbicide effective again. Dr. Norsworthy, then what are your suggestions for evaluating a short and long-term impact of production practices on weed species shifts and profitability? We continue to do research to understand the long-term implications. You know, we have right now probably four or five experiments. And when I say experiments, these are large acre experiments. These are not our typical small plot. This is with commercial equipment in commercial fields where we're going out and we're evaluating production systems, current production systems, or ones that are currently being adopted. And we're looking at changes over time. And we're trying to be in front of this. As technology is coming, there's technologies that generally we're three, four, five years ahead of technology before it actually hits the market. And by being able to take and start long-term experiments, we can understand the implications of some of these technologies before they get there and how they're going to influence the weed populations out here in the fields. What's going to work? What's not going to work? More so than just going out there and taking a single year snapshot looking at a given weed population. Dr. Norsworthy, according to some notes from you, you have done some work with glucosinolates. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? That's some work that we've done in the past. We're currently not doing a lot of work in in that area, but brassicaceae plants, which would be things like turnips, mustards, those type of plants produce glucosinolates. And glucosinolates are actually compounds that When you macerate tissue, when that tissue begins to decay, these glucosinolates actually are converted into what they call isothiocyanates. And isothiocyanates is a big group of chemicals that we refer to as allelochemicals. And what we've been able to show is you can actually take certain brassicaceae cover crops, and they're very, very beneficial in terms of reducing weed emergence. It's not just strictly the cover crop effect that I was talking about earlier in terms of light. This is a chemical suppression of weeds. So the cover crop is producing a natural herbicide. That's what we're calling an allelochemical, a natural herbicide that is able to suppress weeds. And we've had very good luck with that. The one thing that the listeners need to be mindful of when you're talking about producing an allelochemical, you need to make sure that that cover crop that's going to produce the allelochemical, it's not going to have a negative effect potentially on the cash crop itself. For instance, we did some work where in cotton, we found that some of the brassica cover crops, they had a very, very strong effect on reducing weeds in cotton, but they also had a negative effect on the cotton. The chemicals themselves would have a negative effect on the cotton. So no different than any other herbicide You've got to make sure that the allelochemicals are matching the weed spectrum. In other words, it's going to suppress the weed spectrum that you have in the field, but yet you have a crop that is tolerant to those chemicals. And with that, it takes a lot of research, a lot of time and effort to understand, again, what chemicals are being produced, which crops are tolerant, which weeds are most sensitive. And we've spent a lot of time in the past really trying to quantify that. Again, Dr. Norsworthy, and some information from you, it's important to talk about assessing synthetic isothiocyanates, if I'm saying that word right. 
Tell me more about that. So isothiocyanates were the compounds that I just mentioned. So isothiocyanates, glucosinolates, actually form isothiocyanates. And the glucosinolates are not toxic. It's the isothiocyanates that are toxic. And there's over 100 potential isothiocyanates out there. And so what we've done is we've actually looked at these isothiocyanates. You can actually purchase certain isothiocyanates. And with that, we've tried to, again, quantify which isothiocyanates are going to be toxic to specific weeds as well as have crop tolerance to those isothiocyanates. So by purchasing synthetic isothiocyanates and studying those, we're better able to go out and understand with these brassica cover crops, if they're going to produce those isothiocyanates, which ones are active again on the weeds, which ones are potentially active or not, hopefully not active on the crops. All right, Dr. Norsworthy, anything else to add into this conversation today? The one thing I would just tell all the listeners is if you want to be successful long-term in your weed management programs, it's all about diversifying your weed control program. If you have something that works this year, try something a little bit different next year. And I'm not saying try something that doesn't work, but just make sure that you're further diversifying that program because whether it be chemicals or even whether it be non-chemicals, weeds can develop resistance to non-chemical strategies. If we continue to do the same strategy year after year, weeds will quickly evolve resistance to those strategies. On that, we will wrap up the show here today. Once again, thank you to my guest, Dr. Jason Norsworthy, Distinguished Professor of Weed Science and the Elm Farming Chair of Weed Science with the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. This successful Farming Weeds Playbook podcast has been brought to you by Anthem and Authority Brand Herbicides from FMC. Visit ag.fmc.com. And for more agricultural news and information, be sure to log on to agriculture.com. I'm Lori Boyer for Successful Farming.